So the Bible becomes a lens by which you can see what God is doing now and in the future and what you ought to be doing now and in the future. And we need this biblical lens because our lenses are broken. We do not have any sort of spiritual perception. We need God to describe things for us, to explain things to us, to tell us what is to come, and to tell us what we are to be doing. And so we have a wonderful parable given to us by Jesus that covers both of those categories. Jesus explains in this parable what God is doing and what we ought to be doing in light of what God is doing. Now, I think it goes without saying that knowing what God is doing is very important. The disciples in the first century thought they knew exactly what God was doing. In fact, as they head to the city of Jerusalem, they think that is the final stop on their three-year tour of preaching the kingdom of God, and it is at Jerusalem that Jesus is going to assume His throne and rule over not just Israel, but the nations. And so the disciples, and I assume these large crowds that are following Jesus, all anticipate this pivotal event that is about to happen. And what Jesus must do, as He often does in the Gospels, is correct their thinking. And He does this with a parable. And he even, we are even told in verse 11 why He's telling us the parable. It says, as they heard these things, Jesus proceeded to tell a parable because He was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So not every parable has an introductory statement as to why it's being given. This one does. And what we find is that there is misunderstanding about Jesus and His mission. Not a huge shock if you have been following along through the Gospels. They knew Messiah was going to reign from Jerusalem. They had the Old Testament Scriptures that prophesied that this would happen. But what they missed time and time again that was that Jesus first had to go and suffer and be an atoning sacrifice for sin. The cross before the crown. And so Jesus knows what they're thinking and He's got to correct their thinking with a parable because the duration of time between His first and second coming is going to be so significant that they must have a clear understanding of this. So He tells them in verse 12, He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. So I'm going to tell you up front what this parable means so that when we work our way through all the particulars of it, it's going to make more sense. Jesus is the nobleman. The country, the far country is heaven. And this nobleman's return as king is a reference to the second coming of Jesus Christ. 
This is God's heavenly timeline. This is portrayed here in this parable that Jesus teaches. Jesus is not entering Jerusalem to reign, but He must go to a distant land to receive a kingdom and then return someday as king. That's the big idea of the parable. This is what God was doing, and we will see instruction given for what the disciples of this king must be doing. This is what He tells them in verse 13. Calling ten of His servants, He, the nobleman, gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. Now, I will ask you, who do you think these servants are? Us, the apostles? Good guesses. I think it's meant to portray the disciples of Jesus. Not just 12 disciples in the first century, but all disciples throughout all of the church age. These are the ones who are going to serve the king until he returns. So I think the number 10 here is symbolic. It's just meant to communicate a group. It's not necessarily a numbered group. Again, if he said 12, you would immediately think, oh, he's talking about the apostles. I don't need to listen to this. But the fact that he uses the number 10, I think it's representative of all of his servants up until the time that he returns again, and that includes you. So he gives these ten servants a mina. Now a mina is a unit of currency that is equivalent to about three months' wages. So this is not an extraordinary amount of money, but it's also not spare change. It's a reasonable amount for servants to work with, And this nobleman who is going to receive a kingdom expects his servants to put that money to use while he's gone. Fair enough? Just to summarize, Jesus is the nobleman. Heaven is the distant land where he's going to receive a kingdom. He gives his servants, that's you, a certain amount of money for you to invest until this king returns. This is the heavenly timeline, and we find ourselves in between the first and second coming of this king. And we are given work to do for this king. Now, if this sounds familiar to you, I think I've heard this parable before. Be careful, because I don't want you to confuse it with the parable of the talents, which is in Matthew 25 which I had Richard read for us earlier. There are very many similarities between those two parables. For example, there's a man who goes on a journey and he gives a certain amount of money to servants and he expects them to put that money to use uh, until he returns. But the differences are significant enough where I think it's important to keep these parables distinct in your mind. In that parable, Jesus gives them a talent, which is a unit of money worth 20 years' wages. Okay, so the parable of the talents, he gives them a ton of money, 20 years' 
salary. And in that parable, the distribution of those talents is not equal. You remember? He gives one servant five talents. He gives one servant two talents. He gives one servant one talent. But here in our parable, the same amount is given to each servant. So you have ten servants and you have ten minas, which means it is an equal distribution among all of the servants and not an emphasis on this one received more than that one. So in the parable of the talents, you have some servants whom God has blessed with certain gifts, and they are expected to have a greater return because of those certain gifts that God's given. So you might be sitting in a pew next, you know, you might be a five-talent Christian and sitting next to a two-talent Christian. But in the parable of the minas, all have been given an equal amount. I think that's important. So, the question then becomes, what have we all been given equally? I think if you read through the parable of the talents, you start to pick up on the idea that, hey, God has not gifted all Christians equally. Some He gives more gifts to. We, we get the, the word talent, like human talent, we get that from that parable. It's a picture of God equipping people with different gifts. But here, everyone gets the same. So what could this be? What is it that all Christians have been given? And I've got some ideas, but at least one, I think, which is a good contender, is we've all been given the Gospel. In other words, the King is going to leave and then return, and He entrusts us all with the same thing, which I think has to do with the Gospel. We are all commanded to live for the King and we have all been given the necessary materials to do so. So this one is not about some getting greater gifts than others, but about using what we have all been given and being faithful with it. So the minas are distributed, one per person, and this nobleman who is soon to be king leaves simple instructions found in verse 13. He says, engage in business until I come. These are your instructions. This is what the king expects of you. You are to engage in business for the king. We are to work for him. We are to serve him until he returns. This means that your daily pursuit... Your very purpose every morning that you wake up is to engage in the king's business. It's not only about exercising a certain spiritual gift like you have in the talents. That could be part of it. But it's more about your daily service to the king. Commentator Leon Morris said this, Matthew's parable of the talents reminds us that we all have different gifts. This parable, that we all have one basic task, 
that of living out our faith. So, the business that you engage in is about glorifying God with your life. It's about walking with Him. It's about living for Him. It's about serving Him. So, I was just thinking of how we do that. What does that look like? So, I made this list. I mean, there's prayer. There's church life. There's Bible study. There's evangelism. There's various forms of ministry. We are to help others. We are to give sacrificially. We are to uphold and promote the truth of God in the world. I would put all of that in a category of what does it look like to live out your faith? Now, what makes this duty particularly challenging is that we are put in an environment that is hostile to the king. In in other words, there's a risk involved for you living out your faith in this world. And you can see that in verse 14. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Now, this makes sense to the first century hearer because Jesus faced this opposition in the first century, did He not? But it is the same opposition that we face in the 21st century in our hostile, secular world in which we live. You are called to serve the King in a world that has rejected Him. The citizens who hated Him are all around us, and yet we are called to be faithful in the midst of this. And what Jesus does in the remainder of this parable is describe the three types of people in the world and their attitude toward this returning King. And I borrowed this outline from Dr. MacArthur. It's so plain. It's so clear. Three types of people. We will see the faithful we will see the false, and we will see the foes. The faithful, the false, and the foes. This summarizes all of humanity and the three types of people that Jesus will encounter upon His return. So first of all, the faithful. Remember the servants are representative of disciples, And that is who we're talking about here in point number one. Look at verse 15 with me. When he returned, that is this king, this newly crowned king, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. 
So, first we see the kind of servant that we all want to emulate. These are the ones who are the faithful. And notice, while each servant was given the same amount, and I belabored that point already, what they gained in the end was not the same. They were each given an equal amount, and yet the results were not equal. Now, this reminds me that not everyone's ministry is going to look the same. You may have one kind of service to the king that looks different than another person, and what the king is going to do upon his return is to reward you accordingly to how you served him. Not everyone's area of influence will be the same. Not everyone's gifting will be the same. There will be differences throughout all believers, but what we will see is that this king is going to reward them based on what they have done. So, some people are given more opportunities. We know based on where you live in the world and where you lived during this church age, you may have more opportunities than others. But wherever God has placed you, you are to be faithful with what He's given. Peter talks about this in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10 and 11. He says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So, whether you are a missionary serving unreached people groups somewhere in the world, or whether you are a faithful wife and mother who serves your family and raises up your children to know the Lord. The emphasis here is on being faithful with what you have been given. Jesus says to us, here is your mina, what will you do with it? Now notice what he says, that you've been faithful in a very little, verse 17. So he gives each of us something to be faithful with, and it's our job to take that little that we've been given and turn it into much. And this good and wise and generous King promises that our service to Him will result in eternal benefit. Now consider how generous He is. Look at verse 16 again. The first came before Him saying, Lord, Your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. Now this is quite a promotion. Ten cities? Now this could be a reference to this king, Jesus, who is coming to establish his throne on earth, and he is literally going to reign over the earth. And heaven is coming down and we will live in in an Edenic paradise 
that is restored. So Jesus might literally be saying here, I'm going to give you ten cities. Or, it could be just He's creating a contrast between the small investment that you make in this life compared with the reward that God is going to give you someday for your faithfulness. Now imagine just being a mom who struggles in her daily tasks and she's teaching her children and she's keeping house and she's trying to love her husband and she's doing all of these things and it seems like so little and so insignificant. And you know there's Christians out there who are doing the real work of the ministry but she's just faithfully, dutifully working away serving her family and it seems like so little. And yet Jesus says, if you're faithful with the little, He's going to give you a reward that's much. And so I want to encourage all of you today, wherever you are in your life, whatever you are doing for the King that seems so meager and so insignificant, oh, I just live in this small little town called Fillmore and I don't really do much for the King and I do this here, then there, but it's so small and insignificant. He says He will take the small and insignificant and He is going to reward you greatly. That much is crystal clear. I don't know what He means by ten cities. All I know is there is great blessing reserved for faithfulness to this King. And we see in verse 18, it says, The second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. He doesn't chasten him for only making five. He says, why don't you make ten like the other guy? No, he, he rewards him accordingly. Now these are faithful servants to their king. They serve him. They love him. They have sacrificed for Him. They've done it in a world that is hostile to them. So these are servants who are committed to their Master's cause and they are not living for themselves. They are not careless with the Master's things. They are not careless with the Master's time that He has allotted to them. They are faithful with what He has been given. And notice how they describe it. They say, Lord, your mina. They're not sitting around boasting in themselves. They're not patting each other on the back. They're not saying, oh, king, you've got to see what I did with, your, with that money. They are saying, Lord, it was your mina. It was your gifting. It was your sacrifices. It was your opportunities that you gave to me. It was your gospel. Paul says something similar in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. He says in verse 2, Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. That's us. And then in verse 5, he says, Do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness, 
and will disclose the purposes of the heart, then each will receive his commendation from God. And then a couple of verses later he says, What do you have that you did not receive? If then you did receive it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? In other words, our attitude as servants of the King is not to be boasting in our great accomplishments, but we are to be humble and we are to recognize that anything that we have accomplished comes from the very King Himself. He equips us to do the work that He requires and then He rewards us for doing that work. Now, as you read through this parable, I hope it becomes clear that the faithful servants here are a picture of the genuine believer. These are the true believers. Their life is not their own. They live in light of the King and His return. And they serve not themselves in this life, but they serve the One who loved them and gave Himself for them. Not perfectly. We are not a group of perfect people who do everything right now that we know Jesus. But we are faithful. At least the trajectory of our life is a picture of faithfulness. So that's the first group we encounter. Secondly, there are the false. First, you have the faithful. Second, there are the false. Verse 20. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servants. You knew that I was a severe man taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow? Why then did you not put my money in the bank and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? So we now come to the false disciple. The first group servants were a picture of the true disciple, now the false If you notice in verse 20, he calls the king Lord, but he refused to do what the king required of him. He identifies himself as a servant of the king, but his lack of service and his attitude toward the king reveals that he's a servant in name only. He does not love the king. He does not serve the king. In fact, he has a distorted view of the king. He accuses him of abusing his power. He accuses him of taking from others what is not rightfully his. In other words, he thinks the king is unjust and that is his excuse for why he did not serve him. And rather than investing what he was given, he does nothing with it. He says, here you can have it back, which is the ultimate slap in the face. 
Now, this is the person who names the name of Christ. They claim that they are servants of the King, and yet they don't really know the King. They are false. And because they do not love the King, they look at His Word, and they do not see a beautiful and merciful and benevolent King. They look at His Word and they see the thundering of Mount Sinai or the destruction of the city of Sodom or the global flood in Noah's day. And they think He's harsh. They think He's a severe man. Or they consider the conquests of Canaan where God gave Israel the land of the Canaanites and drove them out. And they think He's taking what's not His. Or they find the doctrine of eternal punishment irreconcilable with the idea of a loving God. Now, they might not broadcast this. This might just be their own personal beliefs that they keep hidden within their hearts. But they have a distorted perspective of this king, and it's going to be revealed on Judgment Day what they really thought of him. They don't serve the king, and they don't think he's worthy of their service. They might use the name Jesus, they might talk about God, but it's really a God that they have formed after their own image. A God they can respect. A God who does not punish sin. A God who does not condemn anyone. There was a woman on Facebook, on the Fillmore Facebook page, and she posted looking for a forward-thinking church. That was her post. I'm new to Fillmore. Can anyone point me to a forward-thinking church? And so, I've been trying to behave myself on Facebook, honestly. I used to get into so many debates, like week in and week out, every time I went on there. It was war, and I have backed way off. But I'm like, i I got to respond to this one. Okay, what do you mean by forward thinking? <clears throat> and so it comes out that what she was looking for in a forward thinking church is a God that does not care about sin. She wants to hear Bible stories that make her feel good. She wants to hear the warm and fuzzy teachings of Jesus. But she does not want to be told that she has to modify her behavior in any way to know God. That is her perception of a forward-thinking church. Don't talk to me about sin. Don't talk to me about Judgment Day. Don't talk to me about God caring what I do with my body. Just give me a church that will make me feel good. So she did not want God on His terms. She wants God on her terms. She's like the servant in this parable. She does not revere the king. She does not think the king is worthy of her service. Now, it's sad to say that there are entire branches of denominations that have gone off the deep end and have completely lost the gospel. And they have bowed down to all of the cultural standards 
You decide your own identity. Love is love. Marriage is what we say it is, not how God describes it. And I think you get the idea. And they stand there in their robes and they preach a non-gospel that cannot save to a people who have not been told they have the disease. And so there's no sickness and there's no cure and God really just exists to make me feel fulfilled. That's those kinds of churches. They don't love what the king requires. They don't love what the king has commanded. They don't love the history of the king and his story. They find the God of the Old Testament to be malicious and merciless. And Jesus they only find to be according to their liking when He says things that make them feel good. So they pick and choose what they want to hear and they refuse the King by replacing His commands with the world's broken philosophies. In fact, they're more subservient to the ideas and philosophies of the king's enemies than to the king himself. And so when this king returns, he is going to expose. And that's what he does with this servant. He exposes this servant for what he really is. He's a slanderer. He is a deceiver. And he is a servant of the king in name only. And his pathetic excuse here is fraught with contradiction. He says on the one hand, in verse 21, that he feared the king, but then on the other hand, he does nothing with what the king entrusts to him. And so the king calls him out on this gross inconsistency. Verse 22, he says, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servants. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow? Why then did you not put my money in the bank and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? In other words, the king is saying, if I'm really this awful, malicious, severe ruler, it would only make sense that you would do something, anything, so that my anger would be directed away from you. I mean, it doesn't make sense to say that you fear me because if you truly feared me, you would try to do at least something to mitigate that fear. It's like, oh man, the king's going to come back. I better get busy. That's what he's saying here. He's calling him out on this. And so what, he, what the servant does is takes the, the mina that he's been given, he hides it away, and does worse than nothing with it because even if he stuck it in the bank, it could have generated some kind of benefit. But now it can't even be used for that. He hides it away. There's nothing beneficial that comes from it at all. So, this is a man who is self-condemned because... His twisted mischaracterization of the king is exposed as false, and especially in light of how the king handles the other servants. 
Notice how generous he is with the faithful. Here's a man who's saying, you're a severe king, I don't trust you, you're to be feared, you're not fair. And what does he do to those faithful servants? Gives them an extraordinary rewards. Now, Jesus does such a masterful job here of of portraying kinds of people. I mean, this is like the lost religious type of person who claims to be part of some kind of Christian tradition, but when push comes to shove, they'll often blame God. Usually if they find themselves in some place of suffering. Usually if something bad happens to them. They're not like Job who says, blessed be the name of the Lord. But they find themselves in a place of suffering. This is not what they signed up for. And they turn and they malign the character of God by blaming Him. This is the kind of person whose faith is only found when things are good. They have no desire to serve this king in a world that is hostile against him. They will not speak on his behalf because, quite frankly, they're embarrassed by this king. And so in verse 22, he is called a wicked servant because that is what he is. He does not give the king what is his due. He harbors resentment against this king who has been proven to be benevolent and generous. And so the king takes his mina and he gives it to the most faithful servant to the shock of the people. And in the end, this man has nothing. He's exposed as a fraud. His servant service to the king was non-existent. And he is left without anything. He does not have the king's reward. He does not have the king's favor. So, there are those who will be proven faithful. And there are those who will be proven false at the king's return. Thirdly, and briefly, the foes. So the faithful, the false, and the foes. We've already gotten a glimpse of this group back in verse 14. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Same group. Verse 27, but as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Now, there are no shortage of people who do not want Jesus to reign over them. This goes all the way back to the first century when the Jews said, we do not want this man to reign over us. And they rejected him as their Messiah. And this goes all through the ages up through the 21st century where we live in a culture where people say we do not want this king to rule over us. It is 
the Christ-rejecting nations who want nothing to do with this King. Jesus ascends into heaven. He is given rightful ownership of the earth because He, as the second Adam, has earned the kingdom because He has defeated sin and death. He has defeated the works of the devil. So the earth belongs to Him and He is going to come back and and establish this kingdom. And yet the world by and large says to Him, we do not want this man to reign over us. They oppose Him through their godless philosophies. They oppose Him through their godless governments. They do not want Him to dictate what they do with their bodies. They do not want Him to dictate who they are to marry or what it looks like to uh, have morality or have relationship with God. They do not want His good and wise boundaries over human behavior. I mean, you see it all around, don't you? We are in a post-Christian culture. Meaning we have had generations of people who at least had some semblance of Christian tradition in their lives. There was at least some reverence around the holidays or there was at least some, you know, bow your head and repeat the same prayer every night at dinner time. But there was something. There was at least an acknowledgement that yes, God is who He says He is. But in a post-Christian culture, the king's standards have been completely cast off. And not just, well, you know, that's not for us, but have been attacked. So we are in an age where the precepts of the church, the doctrines that we hold, the God that we reveal to the world is under attack. Jesus describes what marriage is and the people say, no, it's what we say it is. Jesus describes male and female and they say, no, it's the way we say it is. Jesus describes our origins and creation and where we come from, and where we are headed, and they say, no, it's our creation story. It's how we say it is. In other words, we do not want this man to reign over us. And so they refuse him, but there is no amount of resistance that is going to topple this kingdom. And while the return of Christ is going to be a time of reward for the faithful, it will also be a time of judgment for the king's enemies. And Jesus uses some of the harshest language found in any of the Gospels to describe this. He says in verse 27, But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Jesus said this. You know how people say, oh, the God of the Old Testament is so wrathful and so harsh and the God of the New Testament is so loving and forgiving. Jesus said this. 
Jesus, meek and mild, the Lamb of God, who was silent before its shearers. Jesus is coming back to make war against the nations. In fact, as we close, turn to the book of Revelation because what Jesus describes here is what is depicted in Revelation chapter 14 when this king returns. Revelation chapter 14. I'm sorry, Revelation 19. The Apostle John is having a vision. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ. He says in verse 11, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. Those are crowns. This is his kingly Return, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is a lens by which we look into the future to see what happens when this king returns. Yes, this king is returning to reward his servants for faithful service to him, but he is also coming to destroy his enemies, which reminds us, servants of the living king, we have a job to do. Because this king who is coming to make war against the nations is now presently inviting those nations to come and be friends with him. The one who is going to slaughter his enemies first is welcoming them into his fellowship. And you know how he does that? He does that through you. And so we have an obligation to serve our king by inviting those enemies to become friends. And so I ask you this afternoon, are you serving this king? Are you serving this king? Are you using the mina that he has given you? And if you are in Christ, he has given you this mina, whatever it might be, the Gospel, the Holy Spirit, I don't know. He doesn't say, but we all have been given something to serve him with, and he expects a return on his investment. And so the big question is, will you be rewarded on that day? Will you be among the faithful who serve the King? Will you be exposed as one of the false who only professed to know the King but didn't?
Or will you be one of His enemies, the foes? Our Heavenly Father, we thank You, Father, that You are so gracious to us that You have given us a love for the King, I trust. And that all in the hearing of my voice are committed to serving this King. And Lord, I pray that all would recognize Your worthiness and that serving You is not a burden, but it is actually our life's greatest joy. Help us as we go forth this week, Lord. Help us as we... um, Fulfill those divine appointments you have for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.